All right, Rick, let's go into your next patient. This next woman is 72 years old. She presented nine years ago. She was 63. She had a one centimeter mass in the right breast. This was biopsied and showed to be a poorly differentiated, high-grade infiltrating ductal carcinoma. The sentinel lymph node biopsy was positive. 14 nodes were then removed. A second node was also positive. She was ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 nude negative. At that time in 2000, we treated her systemically with four cycles of AC, which she tolerated very poorly. She shared with us today it was not nausea or vomiting or fatigue. She felt energetic, but she had one neutropenic fever, hospitalization, mucositis, oral thrush, and was very averse to chemo with those issues. She was then treated with five years of tamoxifen, which she tolerated very well and stopped in June of 2006. Because of her node positivity, I recommended letrozole as further endocrine therapy, and she tolerated that very poorly. She had a lot of bone pain, joint pain. It was disabling. She really only had a couple of months. I talked to her about trying a different aromatase inhibitor, but her research on the internet had gleaned that these medications tend to have the same side effects, and she deferred that. She was going to travel to Greece and didn't want the hassle. In Late 2008, she developed hoarseness. She developed some difficulty swallowing. She saw her primary doctor, her ENT, who noticed a paralyzed vocal cord. She had a CT scan, which showed a large right upper lobe lung mass, mediastinal adenopathy, and could see bone metastasis on the CT. And her doctors were very concerned she had lung cancer. She had a distant history of smoking. She was then referred back to me. We did a PET scan, which interestingly showed the right upper lobe lung mass to be completely non-avid. And the radiologist had thought initially this might be scarring from her initial radiation therapy to the breast, which it appears that it was. The mediastinal adenopathy was very avid, as was her bony metastasis. And we elected to treat her a little differently with aromacin, which she interestingly did tolerate or does tolerate well now, fulvestrant and zometa, the latter two being on a monthly basis. For about three months, she had very little benefit. Her tumor markers were rising and she felt poorly. She was having difficulty breathing. Are you saying you gave her an AI and fulvestrant together? I did. Okay. Before you go too much farther, Kevin, what about that strategy? Well, I think we were kicking that around. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent with this, but, you know, 20 and 30 years ago, there was a tremendous amount of interest in looking at the worth of combining hormonal therapies. There were long lists of trials, tamoxifen plus megase plus halotestin. Every possible combination of hormonal therapies was compared to a single hormonal therapy in small randomized trials in metastatic breast cancer. And the recurring theme always was that response rates did go up if you gave hormonal therapies in combination. But since overall survival was never prolonged by such a strategy, that kind of approach to treatment gradually faded from view and was pretty much forgotten by the 1990s. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. So the response rates were higher? So there's a chapter that Craig Henderson wrote, which is one of the most remarkable pieces of academic work I've ever seen. The subject was metastatic breast cancer, and it was an encyclopedic summary in the old breast cancer textbook from probably about 10 years ago, which had over 600 references. And he had categorically listed all studies of this nature. And there was this, again, this recurring theme that response rates tended to be a little higher. 
But the overall effect longitudinally was not very great, and the toxicities of combining hormonal therapies, of course, is somewhat tedious, and so this kind of therapeutic strategy never caught on. Now, this particular case, though, was really challenging. Here's an older patient with a recurrence which was not visceral, but in a critical location that was producing very, very severe symptoms for her. But she had an inherent aversion to chemotherapy with a very, very bad experience. And I think if you have to default to a strategy which is in the patient's best interest, I actually thought that the combination of hormonal therapies here was an inspired choice. Again, is there any data to support a higher rate of response in combining fulvestrant with an aromatase inhibitor? No, I think it's an ongoing research question. And in fact, I think there is a trial that hasn't been reported yet right. that's looking at that. Right. A couple of them, actually. And I, of course, have no clue as to what the trial will render. But under circumstances where a therapeutic response for symptomatic reasons was desirable and chemotherapy was felt to be not in her best interests, especially in the part of the patient, then I don't see a downside to this particular approach. And in fact, I don't want to jump the gun here, but you know, it did seem to help the patient after a period of time. So what happened there, Rick? Well, after about three months of the markers rising and her doing poorly, I started actually to talk to her about going back on tamoxifen versus chemotherapy, and then she just got better. Her markers started to drop, her breathing resolved, her dysphagia improved. She actually had a very interesting intervention by her ENT. She had a vocal cord transplant. They took cartilage tissue from her supraclavicular area, hyoid bone, and transplanted that into the vocal cord that was paralyzed in the open position. And that's helped her considerably with that. But systemically, she has no bone pain. She now feels well. She's traveling. So for the present time, we're delighted she's not on chemotherapy. But the issue of going back to tamoxifen, I thought, was very intriguing. So, But she's still on the AI and fulvestrin. Correct. Interesting. Kevin, any thoughts about the report in San Antonio by Matt Ellis? And I think it's going to be published looking at really high-dose fulvestrin, not loading dose, but I think it was 500 milligrams a month. And then I think even the first month, even more than that, where they saw some encouraging efficacy findings. And I think there's a phase three trial looking at it. Yeah. Our dosing of fulvestrin in our own place has been very much by the book, very traditional. And although there was a, obviously a theoretical advantage to a dose escalation with a substance like fulvestrin, the worth of that and how it will play out in clinical practice, I think, remains to be seen. Kevin, any thoughts about her as a person as you met her today? The one thing that the patient has had to cope with is a chronic compromise in her voice. Her voice is not normal, although it's fascinating to see that with effort and concentration, as she sits there and enunciates, she can actually make it better consciously. And this has been an outcome of, I guess, a speech therapy in which she has been engaged for some time. I thought that was quite remarkable to witness that this critically disabling symptom was able to be fixed, at least in part surgically, at least in part endocrinologically, and at least in part consciously by a patient's effort. Rick, what are her support systems? You know, she has a lot of friends. Her husband is not that well, but she's a positive person. She lives here in the coast of Maine, and she has supportive children. And I think she's, at this age, she thought she was going to die. She thought she had lung cancer that had metastasized to bone and to the mediastinum, and she thought it was over. So she is pretty happy right now to feel well and to know, and we talked about that without a biopsy, that this appeared to be breast cancer and appears to be behaving that well, which was much the 
benefit. We asked Dr. Fox today, which I thought was a great answer, you know, if she progressed, would you consider tamoxifen? Would you consider radiation, chemotherapy, radiation palliative to the mediastinum, knowing that she has bony metastasis? And I thought he answered that very well. It was very helpful to the patient, I think. I guess the other question is what other kinds of hormone therapy might she get? Mm. Matt Ellis had a report in San Antonio looking at the old high-dose DES. What are some of the endocrine options she might consider? We talked about tamoxifen, and is there evidence of tamoxifen having value in someone who has progressed on an aromatase inhibitor? And the answer is very clearly yes, there is. And one of the original clinical trials done by the Breast International Group comparing letrozole to tamoxifen, there was incorporated into that study a crossover design where patients who progressed were crossed over to the other drug. And I think it gives us a glimpse of tamoxifen's worth, at least in a small group of patients who are actively progressing on letrozole. And the fact is there was a response rate. It was a low response rate, and it wasn't as high a response rate as the converse, which was switching from tamoxifen to letrozole. But in fact, in any patient who has had no recent tamoxifen exposure, who progresses on aromatase inhibitor, I think it stands on the list of reasonable options. Matt Ellis's paper was a little bit different. Those patients had to have evidence of actual aromatase inhibitor resistance and were actually forbidden to have fulvestrant. If they had fulvestrant, they weren't permitted to enroll on that study. But for these patients who had what he called acquired aromatase inhibitor resistance, either by virtue of progressing on an AI or relatively quickly after progressing on adjuvant aromatase inhibitors, they were assigned at random to get a more traditional high-dose estradiol versus at 10 milligrams three times daily or a much lower dose at 2 milligrams three times daily. And sure enough, there were responses seen in both arms of the study with a much more favorable toxicity profile with a lower dose. So I thought that was, if one looked in aggregate at the San Antonio conference in 2008, I thought it was that thing which had the greatest immediate applicability to clinical practice. There are lots of patients like this. They're not sick people. They deserve non-chemotherapeutic treatment options. And I certainly, in one small randomized trial, took away from the fact that low-dose estrogen seemed to be a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Rick, do you think at any point this woman might accept chemotherapy if you thought it was in her best interest? I do. I think we would have to share that chemotherapy in 2009 is greatly different than 2000, that our supportive care has improved. And I think the type of chemotherapy that she might benefit from would be well tolerated. We discussed that off trial and Dr. Fox, I had thought about Taxol and Bevacizumab and Dr. Fox, I think very acutely said, you know, this patient capecitabine would be a very nice monotherapy option, although potentially combined with Bevacizumab. Yeah, and I guess we got a little bit more information on that option, Kevin, at the ASCO meeting recently with the Ribbon 1 trial being reported. Yeah, so there's now, I think, a rapidly accumulating database for at least the safety of combining bevacizumab with other things. And I think the encouraging news was that it seems that, at least in the Ribbon trial, with respect to efficacy, there was legitimate efficacy when one combined bevacizumab with all of the things in that study, including taxanes and including vinorelbine. And there was other data from other presentations which implied at least the safety of combining bevacizumab with ixabepilone. The only red flag that I could see was combining bevacizumab with liposome-encapsulated doxorubicin might not have been a good idea. There seemed to be some amplification of toxicity in that presentation 
which led the investigators to conclude that the combination of bevacizumab with pegylated liposome encapsulated doxorubicin was probably not a good idea. But I think it was reassuring to see that no toxicity red flags seemed to emerge with any other agents. But again, it doesn't address the larger issue of whether if one gives bevacizumab with chemotherapy A and they progress, can you or should you continue bevacizumab with chemotherapy B? I guess just specifically in terms of that controversial issue of bevacizumab and capecitabine, people are kind of going back and forth about it. But it looked like, I mean, that was a completely separately reported part of that ribbon one presentation by Nick Robert. And it looked like it was pretty beneficial to add in the Bev. I think the capecitabine bevacizumab combination, unfortunately, got a little bit of a bum rap because that, of course, was the first randomized trial of bevacizumab in breast cancer in a heavily pretreated group of women where the performance of bevacizumab and capecitabine was a mixed performance. The response rate was clearly higher, but the progression-free survival was clearly not prolonged. And is that a consequence of the inadequacy of the combination, or is it a consequence of treating heavily pretreated patients on a randomized trial of a new agent? The Excalibur study, which is an attempt to look at capecitabine and bevacizumab as first-line therapy, clearly showed an improvement in progression-free survival, even with an attenuation of the dose of capecitabine. So... I see it now as a legitimate first-line choice for patients like our patient who will at some point require systemic chemotherapy but has a strong aversion to more intensive intravenous forms. 